0: This is the Cato Daily podcast for Wednesday, May fifteenth, two thousand nineteen. I'm Caleb Brown. How do large platforms like Facebook both create a positive user experience by filtering out some content, while at the same time respecting the value of free and open communication? What sway do restrictive governments have over large internet platforms to play by those governments' rules and not the more open rules of, say, the United States? At the Cato Institute's City Seminar in San Francisco, John Samples sat down with Facebook's head of product policy and counterterrorism, Monica Bickert. This is a portion of their discussion.
1: It is indeed a pleasure to have Monica Bickert here, the global head of policy for Facebook, and really the head of content moderation, this new thing that is uh, so important is going to become more important. Uh, Monica is a celebrity, in fact. I define a celebrity as a person who has had a special article about them in Vanity Fair. And <laughs> just a few months, so you, online you can find for free just Monica Bickert in Vanity Fair, and you get an introduction that what Peter was talking about, just how difficult her life is... It's, and Monica, I have to say, with two and a half billion uh, users, it's a miracle you came here today, having to try to deal with all of that. Ten percent of the people, roughly speaking, are here in the United States. Right. So it's it's the one that's probably the one fact I always forget. But we are in the United States. Um, for us, it's familiar ground for Americans. that freedom of speech is a primary value. We have a First Amendment that protects the freedom of speech from Congress and from any government official, high or low. Is that, where does the First Amendment fit? Is that something that is enforced by Facebook and in your work? And how does it inform your work?
2: First, let me start by uh, thanking Cato, thanking you, thanking Peter for the opportunity to be here. Yes, the job is always busy. I I'm so happy when I get the chance to engage with audiences who are interested in this topic. Because I think this is, it's fundamental for me in understanding and hearing the views from people around the world about what we're getting right, what we're not getting right. Um, and I also think there are a lot of misconceptions about how we do what we do and why we do what we do. So thank you. This is a great opportunity for me. Uh, in terms of the First Amendment, look, I'm an American-trained lawyer The First Amendment is very important to me personally. When I'm in my role at Facebook, we are a business. We are trying to create a place where more than 2 billion people across the world will come and share their stories and connect with one another. That's how the business works. And in order to do that, we have to make sure that it is a safe place, and we also have to make sure that we are uh, minimizing the risk of our service being blocked, that we are complying with uh, laws and regulations where it's necessary and where it's appropriate. That doesn't mean that if a government asks us to remove speech, that we will do it. And we can talk about some of the nuances of of where we draw those lines and how we do it. But we're not operating in a world where we've got 100% of our uh, users in the United States. In fact, like John says, about 87% of people using Facebook are outside the United States. So this is, a, this is a population with uh, governments, including India, Indonesia, Turkey, Russia, uh, Germany, that have a lot of opinions about how speech should look for the people in their country who are speaking online. And uh, those are perspectives that we have to understand as we craft our rules. So our rules are fundamentally about creating a safe place and m- minimizing overall risk to the service.
1: So let me, this is a libertarian-minded audience, as you might expect, let me ask you a libertarian objection to some of the work I've done of some of my colleagues. If I go to Facebook for the first time, I, you offer me basically, I know what you have, a network, you have services that make that network work well. And to get on it, I have to agree to your community standards, and part of that also is you are the decider. You, in particular, and and Mark Zuckerberg, are the decider about what can stay on the uh, network, what can stay on the platform. Uh, So it's a really libertarian thing. You, I can consent to you and you can consent to me. And why isn't that the end of the story? And in the end of the day, why are all these people going around saying Facebook should do this, Facebook should do that, Facebook should get rid of the left, Facebook should get rid of the right? It doesn't make any sense to a libertarian. It's, after all, the property of the shareholders of Facebook.
2: Well, one of the things that we keep in mind is we don't want this to be a place where uh, if anybody says this is offensive to me or I don't like this speech, that we just take it down. And that leads to a place where nobody wants to come because it's just not even interesting anymore. So it's about getting this balance right. And in order to, which is a very practical thing at the end of the day, it's about finding a line that actually makes sense for most people around the world um, where it's a a place that is safe, but also a place where you can express your views even if those views are uncomfortable for some people. And I know, John, you've written in the past about uh, the views of American young people today uh, about whether or not it's okay to share offensive speech in public. Mm -hmm. And around the world, we see that a lot of people are uncomfortable with the idea that you can express offensive speech. We say it clearly on our site that you can come to Facebook and you may encounter speech that is uncomfortable or offensive to you. And that's why we give you tools to block it. But we also wanna make sure that we are creating a balance that makes sense. To do that, you're right that uh, my team, some members of whom are here today, uh, my team and I and Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg are making a lot of these decisions every day. But we don't want to do it. We don't think it's practical to do it or right to do it with just us working in a silo. So that's why we engage so much with groups around the world. When we published the community standards, we published a version of them you know, many years ago. I came to the company seven years ago, and we had community standards even then. But we published a new version in May where we gave a lot more information about how we draw these lines. And we're the only company that has done this so far, really get into the nitty-gritty about what kind of speech is allowed, how we define hate speech, how we define terrorism. Before we did that, we actually talked to more than 100 organizations around the world to hear their views on where this line should be. Um, So it it is true that we are making these decisions, but we think it's important to get the balance right to talk to a lot of people.
1: So the, I came across this, i um, preparing for this uh, amazing fact. There was this woman named Kate Klonick, who is a, a big scholar in sure. this area. And she did a lot of interviews with people like Monica. And one of the conclusions, there's this system they have where if you find something you think violates the rules, you flag it, and then Facebook follows up on it. From those interviews, Professor Klonick found that the Facebook people told her, All of the flag stuff is almost always done because people don't like the speech, not because it's somehow violating the rules. So then you get in after that, you've got to go through all of this stuff and figure out what is actually dangerous speech. Uh, How do you do that? I mean, it's a serious, Mark Zuckerberg has talked about the values you're trading off and the first one in line is voice, which I think that means something like free speech, right? Right. And then there's safety and other things. How exactly could you talk about a little bit about that? Because this seems to me in that whirlpool of people with trying to get you to do stuff you're not supposed to do, what the values of the company are terribly important here.
2: Absolutely. So there's there's two challenges I think about in this job. The first is drawing the line in the right place. And that's what I was talking about before with this very global audience that's going to see speech very differently. The second challenge is actually enforcing those rules, uh, which is what you're asking about now. Mm. And in many ways, this is just, if not more, challenging because we have billions of posts every day. We have more than a million reports of potentially violating content every day, and that's from users. And then in addition, we have proactive tools that are flagging things like uh, beheading videos or other content that might violate our standards, That some of which our reviewers then have to also look at. So this is a massive operation. We have more than 15,000 content reviewers that are based around the world. So what we try to do is uh, create a system where when somebody reports content to us or when our proactive tools flag it as potentially violating our, our guidelines, that it gets routed to a content reviewer sitting somewhere around the world who has the appropriate language expertise and subject matter expertise. Sometimes that's easy. Let's say it's, it's uh Somebody reports it for pornography or our system thinks it's pornography. Well, you can speak any language and you can still review a post for pornography. But what if it's hate speech and it's in German? Then we need to make sure that it goes to somebody who speaks German, who has the right background, who has the right uh, special training. And so there's this, this pretty intense infrastructure to get these reports routed to the right people. Then we try to respond to the report, review it, and respond to the user, and if appropriate, the person who posted the content, within 24 hours. That's not always possible. Sometimes we have to take a deeper dive on things, but most of the time we respond within 24 hours. Uh, Like the reviewer said to Kate, many times people report content that does not violate our standards. And the, the accuracy in the reporting rate varies by area, so you can report something for nudity, or bullying, or hate speech, or terror propaganda. And, you know, a lot of people, if you ask them what hate speech is, it's mean speech. Well, that's not how we define it. We define hate speech as a direct attack against a person or a group of people based on a specific characteristic, and then we list those characteristics, like race, religion, gender identity, and so forth. So if somebody just says something that's kind of mean about, uh, say, a political party, that is not hate speech under our standards, and yet people will report it. People will also report, um, you know, I don't like this football team, and, and John does. And so John writes after the game, my team's the best, and the other team's terrible, and then I report his post. And that's the sort of thing that we see commonly. So it's really important to us to not just remove content based on a user report. We have to get it into these reviewers. We'll look at it. If it doesn't violate, then we send a message back to the person who reported it saying it doesn't violate our standards, but you can block this person if you don't want to see
1: it anymore. So just to linger for a moment on the hate speech, I, and I'm not, I don't think what I'm about to ask you about is widely known. Uh, when, in the United States, when we think about these kinds of issues related to civil rights, we're in, for race, for example, we're inclined to think uh, African-Americans are of particular concern, but in your standards, actually, as I understand it, and as you apply them, any sort of re, uh, re, you know, negative reference to race Whatever the racial group was, is going to get into trouble. It's not uh, you're you're really applying the standards across the board to all groups. That's that, right. Or, or any other. Uh, there's a list of a bunch of groups. Um, it's characteristics. Characteristics. Right. Yeah. So we
2: don't uh, we don't say these particular groups are protected. Hmm. We say these characteristics are protected. Race, religion. Everybody's got a race. Many people have a religion. Um, gender identity, everybody's got one. You know, these are the sorts of things where if you attack a group of people based on this, like you say, these people deserve to die, then we would remove that content.
1: Speaking of deserving to die, I want to tell you about one of my moments in my research. It was early on, and I was full, and I still am full of First Amendment vim and vigor, uh, but I went to a briefing by Facebook people. And throughout, about the middle of it, they started talking about the case of Myanmar. Uh, Myanmar... Is a, a, a riven society, right, in which there's been a real danger of um, genocide in, in recent memory. And I started thinking, I'm glad I'm not Mark Zuckerberg, you know, or Monica Vickert, trying to figure out in such a how can you apply rule, rules of freedom of speech could easily enable genocide. And you had this concern about yes. Myanmar, but at the, could you talk a little bit about that? Because I think it's a very interesting idea about. Genuinely dangerous speech, right? Absolutely. Uh,
2: One of the things that I've learned, so I've been with the company seven years, and one of the things I've seen is we used to focus more on what were our biggest language populations and hiring most of our reviewers in those areas. What we've seen over time is there are sometimes smaller populations, languages where we're not going to see as much content, but where the risks are actually higher. Uh, Myanmar is an example. Sri Lanka is an example. So building the relationships with groups on the ground who can tell us what kinds of terms might actually be used to stoke violence or what would be hate speech. That's been an important priority for us over the past few years. Hiring more language reviewers. You know, uh, two years ago, we had a small handful of native Burmese speakers working on our content review team. Now we have more than 100. We don't need 100 on an average day. But if there is some spike in violence on the ground, or if we get some information from civil society partners about something we have to watch, then we have to make sure that we have the people to actually review those reports real time.
1: So this is so I'll go, to come back to America for a minute. You talk about in some of your writings about, and you already have mentioned today, engaging with external sources, right? And you're, you're going out and talking, and indeed right now, you're, you're talking to people that are very interested in these issues. Uh, but it seems to me that in a sense, Facebook's in an early stage of being something like a government, right? In the sense, how do you keep uh, some independence? Because you're going to see a lot of organized groups, you already do, coming at you. You're going to get up in the morning, and they're going to be yelling about it, and they're going to be talking about what the voters want to do and what political officials want to do. It seems to me that from my position, the most important thing that happens in the next few years is that you keep your independence because you have the right to make these decisions. But I wonder how you can do it. These are highly organized groups that are really know how to influence things. And they may sense a vulnerability or think that you can be made vulnerable. I suspect you do this consultation process. You do want to maintain, you have to maintain your independence. But is it a concern that you might become captured by some of these political forces?
2: Um, I wouldn't say capture is a concern. Anytime that we're looking at an issue, so we have a a specific stakeholder engagement team that uh, contributes to our process on refining our policies, and that team sits under me, and their job for any given issue, let's say we're looking at what to do with fetus photos. This is a real example from the past year then their job is to scope the entire spectrum. Let's find people who are really far on this side, let's find people who are really far on this side. We talk to a lot of groups that, um, you know, people will say, I can't believe that you would even talk to that group. I I don't agree with them at all. And our thought is we need to actually understand the full spectrum so we can craft an idea that makes sense. So I don't worry about capture. Now, it is, the independence question is an interesting one. Unlike a government, we are very directly accountable to our users in that they can just leave at any time. So if you are a citizen of Uzbekistan and you don't like that, there's often not a lot you can do about it. But if you are a user of Facebook and you don't like it, you can just quit using it. So there is a deep sense of accountability as just a practical necessity of running the business. So that's why we're really focused on being very transparent. We published the more detailed standards. We're now publishing reports. We started back in May and we did another one in November and we'll have another one coming up in May where we're actually telling people, here's how much content we've removed in these different areas. Here's how much of it we found proactively before anybody reported it to us. And here's how prevalent that is. Here's you know, how much of that content people are actually seeing on Facebook relative to other content. All of this is a mechanism. Oh, and you know the meeting that, that you attended, we have this meeting where we refine the policies and literally it's like, a, it's like a, a, mini, a mini sort of legislative or policy crafting session where every two weeks we get together with people from across the company, across the globe. My team sits in 11 offices around the globe but we also have lawyers and engineers and operations and PR folks, everybody sort of joining in. And the conversation is, okay, we're looking at this potential refinement to the policy Here's why. Here's some options. Here are the unintended consequences of each of these different options that we'll try to mitigate, but you can't do it perfectly. Here's what the 15 groups from around the world that we've talked to across the spectrum say we ought to do about it. Here's what the data shows from on and off Facebook. And then we arrive at a decision. So we're now publishing the minutes to those meetings. Um, all of this is a move to try to maintain some sort of independence in this policy crafting process by saying, look, we are doing our best to be inclusive and try and get this right.
1: By the way, Monica, Cato's working on making it as easy to exit countries as exit Facebook. Mm. Uh, that's the uh, white whale of libertarian. It's a long-term project. We'll get there, though. You thought I had the hardest job. (laughs) But, you know, let's start down that road just a little bit, because that is the libertarian. You either consent to it. If you don't want to consent to it, well, you don't have to. And so just don't go there or leave, right? But there's, a, as you know, there's a loud, if not, uh, there's loud people and a lot of arguments that really a lot of people say, no, you can't. They've got a monopoly. You can't. It's essential to life now. It's the public forum. And that uh, you, to be off of Facebook is to, not, to have no uh, influence or be denied. Some, there's various versions of this. Uh, I'm wondering how you respond to that. And, of course, this, this, these kinds of arguments lead where my concerns lie, which is they lead quickly to, well, Facebook has control. You can't really exit. Individual choice doesn't work so government has to get involved congress should get involved these forums should be or platforms should be made into public utilities you've heard all these arguments i'm yeah. sure but the core of it i think is if you have the exit argument and those kinds of complaints how do you respond to that it's not
2: it's not in fact the case that people only have a couple options they have many options and in fact the average american has many social media apps i think uh, I was preparing for testimony at one point and was, was poring over the different stats. And I think it's the average American has eight different social media apps um, on his or her device and computer. So really people do have a lot of choice. And I can also tell you when you're uh, at a company you don't ever feel like this is a, you know, oh, people will stay on our service no matter what we do. There is a definite feeling of this being a very competitive business environment and thus needing to make sure that we are providing the service that people want. Uh,
1: Yeah, I remember that uh, Mark Zuckerberg in his testimony said that he didn't feel like he was in a a monopoly situation. And I think probably people tend to discount that, but it seemed like a a very uh, straightforward discussion. Now, you Another thing people talk, talk about is global standards, and you do there's a real strong insistence that there I believe from I've detected at Facebook that we have one set of community standards. Is that really possible? Uh, and conversely, is it really possible to have standards differing by by uh, countries?
2: So uh, we have kind of a hybrid model. We ideally we would have one global set of standards because we want everybody in this global Community to be able to communicate in a borderless way. I've lived overseas. I've got friends from all over the world. It'd be great if we can all have the same conversation on Facebook. Uh, So, our community standards are global in application. Now, in reality, we also have governments with much more restrictive laws on speech. And if they reach out and say, you may not consider this hate speech, but we do here in Germany uh, or India, then we expect you to remove it. And so, we have the community standards that are global. And that's where we will remove content globally. Somebody posts uh, an ISIS beheading video, we would remove that globally. Then we have this secondary process for dealing with requests for removal based on the country's specific laws. And an example would be flag burning in India. And if we get that, or Holocaust denial in Germany. And if we get that kind of request, we look to see, is this from the right legal authority? Is it citing a, a valid law? does that law actually cover the content in question? we talked to outside counsel about that. And then sometimes we will end up removing the content in that country only. And then we publish a report every six months where we will say, here are the countries that asked us to remove speech under their (coughs) local laws, and here's where we've done that. We don't always do it. You know, we may get a request to remove uh, anti-government speech in some country, and we may respond to that government by saying, consistent with our human rights obligations, we don't We don't think this is something we can do. Um, And then there may be consequences for us, or there may not be.
1: One of the great things about being uh, the head of Facebook, as opposed to the head of the president of the United States, is you have an idea. It tends to get followed up on. About two, two and a half years ago, or maybe more, Mark Zuckerberg said, you know, maybe there ought to be a Supreme Court of content moderation. And then at the end of last year, there was more concrete plans about a board that was independent. Of Facebook. There's a lot of emphasis on that. And now, as I understand it, by the end of this year, you're going to have something up and running. Could you tell us something about that and uh, give our audience some sense of the progress on that and maybe some of the difficulties and challenges? Sure.
2: So it's been an interesting project so far. Uh, So here's the idea. The idea is that uh, this board would not be crafting policies. What they would do is when there is a specific piece of content where we've made a decision... And we have, now we have an appeals process. So let's say that you've posted something and, and, uh, you know, we removed it. Um, then you have the right to appeal it. And then we have somebody else look at that within Facebook and we have a conversation. But let's say that we say, yeah, we still think it should come down under our standards. The idea is that we will have some sort of third review mechanism where it will go to a body outside of Facebook who can make a decision about whether or not it should stay up or, or be removed. Um, there's a couple challenges. Okay, one challenge is, making sure that you have judges, as it were, who reflect the norms of this global community. And that's pretty hard to do. Um, the second thing is trying to find the appropriate way of selecting which cases, if you want to call them that, that this this body should hear. Should this be something where it's, uh, you know, first in, first out? I told you before, we we have more than a million reports every day. Of potentially violating contents. We're making a lot of decisions every day. Realistically, this outside body is only ever going to hear a very small percentage of those cases. So how do we decide which ones? Mm-hmm. It's something that we think, you know, it's, a, it's, I think, an important notion to have the idea of sort of independent review, but it is something that, from a practical standpoint, is going to take some time to get right. So what we're doing in the meantime is talking to stakeholders all over the world. We had a workshop in Singapore and we did one in Africa. We did one in Europe. We've had conversations in the U.S. where we're trying to hear from people what their expectations would be for how to make this work. And our hope is that we will have something up and running by the end of this year. That may mean in the in the board's initial um, iteration that Facebook, uh, that will be very... Narrow in what kinds of cases are actually going to the board until we actually know that we can uh, process the review. But the one thing we're very committed to is transparency in the process. So transparency in the decisions, the cases will all be uh, something that will be available to everybody.
0: Monica Bickert is head of product policy and counterterrorism at Facebook. John Samples is a vice president at the Cato Institute. They spoke at a Cato City seminar last month in San Francisco. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.